I just want to start by reminding everybody that every candidate here is more decent, more coherent, and more patriotic than the criminal in the White House. Good point. Who was that guy? From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. On the central coast of Oregon on KYAQ, in Cottage Grove on Queso in Oregon, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, in Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF, amongst other fine terrestrial affiliates. We also stream coast-to-coast coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Here with special debate coverage on the broadcast once again because the top 12 2020 Democratic presidential candidates, yes, 12, gathered for three hours. Yes, three on Tuesday night at Otterbein University in Westerville, Ohio. That's a suburb of Columbus in the longtime battleground state that Donald Trump reportedly won by, I believe it was eight points in 2016. They gathered for their fourth primary debate of the 2020 election cycle and thus our special coverage today. The forum was sponsored by CNN and The New York Times and featured, and yes, I'm going to list them all right here at the top in an abundance of fairness in case my guests today and or I fail to mention uh, any one or more of the full dozen Democrats who shared the stage on Tuesday. So in the order in which they first spoke, we had Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, former Vice President Joe Biden, California Senator Kamala Harris, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, former HUD Secretary Julian Castro, South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Hawaii's Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, California entrepreneur and activist Tom Steyer making his first debate appearance, Silicon Valley entrepreneur Andrew Yang and former El Paso, Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke. The evening's moderators were Anderson Cooper and Aaron Burnett from CNN and the New York Times national editor Mark Lacey. And I realize it's taken me almost three hours just to list the participants at this point. Sorry, not my fault. It was a uh, lively debate. 
Uh, but I wonder if it was only me whose attention began to lag in the third hour of the proceedings. But hopefully my guests uh, attention did not lag uh, as Bernie Sanders, who just suffered a heart attack. He was able to make it through the entire affair with his trademark energy intact, though we'll talk a little bit about that shortly. And as Elizabeth Warren faced much of the fire for the first time, I believe, from fellow candidates now that the uh, polls show her replacing or beginning to replace the previous perceived frontrunner, according to polling anyway, Joe Biden at the uh, top of the polls, as we are now just over three months away from the first votes being cast for the Democratic nomination contest beginning at the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary in February, joining us to at least try and make sense of what we might learn from the season's fourth Democratic debate, featuring, as CNN took pains to tell us, the most candidates ever on one single stage in the history of such affairs. And Desi Doyen, they sort of uh, sold that as a as a selling point. Yeah, definitely not good. a selling point, guys. That is, of course, my producer and uh, exhausted from pulling clips all <laughs> night sidekick Desi Doyen. Uh, Des, I, I think I called you my erstwhile producer at the end of yesterday's show. Yes, you did. But it turns out that means former. <laughs> I know. So just so everyone knows, Desi has not yet been fired <laughs> or quit or quit yet but the day is young we'll see how things go uh, also today joining us for broadcast debate coverage for the first time is jody jacobson the dc-based president and editor-in-chief of rewire.news which can be found online oddly enough at rewire.news they uh, <laughs> expertly cover all manner of things including reproductive and sexual health rights and justice and the intersections of race environmental immigration and economic justice that's a very large intersection try to not get run over previously jody helped shape u.s and u.n policies on a number of similar issues and served for 13 years as founder and executive director of the center for health and gender Equ uh, equity otherwise known as change jody we have followed each other for years i think on twitter's but I believe uh, you and and that you've been a guest on this program before when one of my guest hosts, Angie Coiro, I think, was filling in. Uh, yeah. But it's the yeah. first time I've had the honor of speaking to you. So welcome to the broadcast. Well, thank you for the honor of being on your show. I will uh, work hard to make sure you don't regret it. Uh, also <laughs> joining us is a, a good friend of the show and now a uh, broadcast debate coverage veteran, as I recall, Richard R.J. Escow, also based in D.C. You're based in D.C., right, uh, Richard? I am. All right. I absolutely am. He's a longtime freelance writer, columnist, and host, and managing editor of The Zero Hour, a weekly radio and TV program, which can, you can... Uh, learn about and tune into at this is the zero hour.com he's a writer policy analyst and former insurance executive the emphasis on former richard well by about 20 years at this point all yeah. right yeah okay yeah. yeah you're you're older than i thought he was also a senior writer and editor for the bernie sanders 2016 presidential campaign speaking of older than i thought uh richard last time <laughs> i think we covered this uh, when we, when you were on uh, for the uh, a previous debate but i need to keep checking are you back on the official bernie train this year or are you still I, a free agent at this time i am a free agent all right. And do you have any uh, uh, favorites in the race thus far? Yeah, I would say probably Bernie. Yeah. Uh, I, I have a lot of very positive feelings about Elizabeth Warren, but on 
a number of issues, policy and the way it's presented and what mm-hmm. what the kids today call theory of change. <laughs> uh, I'm still uh, Bernie friendly. I gotcha. Jody, uh, we, since we try to be as transparent as possible on this show, do you have any particular allegiance, professional or otherwise, with uh, any of the candidates so far this cycle? I have no allegiance professionally, um, and I don't uh, speak for Rewire in any kind of endorsement or anything like that, but what I'm looking for are the people that are going to be the most aggressively progressive, Mm -hmm. and, you know, um, if if I had to encapsulate in one phrase, Mm -hmm. big dreams fight hard is where I'm at. So whether it's Bernie or or Elizabeth Warren... um, in terms of the people that I think are fighting for the most expansive vision mm-hmm. of the country, that's where that's where I lean because I think we've got a lot of intersecting and very intractable problems that need a lot of power behind them to solve them. Now, I I usually try to start with uh, the broader topics here, and then we'll zoom into some of the uh, more specific uh, substantive issues throughout the hour. But I I missed the previous debate in Detroit last month due to a family emergency, so you guys may already be used to it. But, Jody, uh, was it just me, or are uh, three-hour debates really, really long? (laughs) They are really, really, really long. (laughs) Good. And they are even longer um, when they start with the same incessant questioning about health care over the same issues and don't really interrogate the issues any further than superficial questions and then go on to ask questions like, who are you best friends with instead of, what are you going to do about the climate catastrophe? Oh, yeah. That didn't come up, did it? No, 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 not once. Not one among once. many things. No, uh, yeah, among many things. Also, uh, uh, voting rights, once again, rights. It, it just never comes up. And I don't know how many presidential cycles. I guess everything's fine with our voting rights. We needn't worry. And immigration. Although I should clarify on the climate change that the moderate, moderators did not ask any questions about climate change, but the candidates themselves brought it up. Yeah. And I also thought that it was interesting that immigration was not mentioned at all. And I suspect maybe that's because... Republicans have not decided to talk about it right now, so CNN decided it wasn't something that they needed to ask about because the Republicans haven't framed it for them. Richard, last last time you joined (laughs) us uh, for a debate, uh, as I recall, you were not thrilled with the moderators. Did uh, CNN's uh, Anderson Cooper and Aaron Burnett and the New York Times' Mark Lacey do any better this time around for us? Well, they weren't as as horrible, but that's setting the bar extremely low, (laughs) I think. Um, I mean, this question, you know, who's your most unusual friend, which, by the way, I would like to answer for my, my most unusual friend is myself. Yeah. Because (laughs) isn't it surprising when you can look at the mirror and say, I'm okay. But having gotten that out of my system, I would say that was an atrocious question. And of course, it took an eternity to get everybody to answer it. And, uh, you know, John McCain was basically everybody's best friend. Right. He's, right. he's not here to speak for you if he could even stand any of these people. But uh, I would say uh, they did better. They Look, the whole format is absurd. I mean, the notion that you're supposed to answer in two minutes and then a 30-second rebuttal, it's designed to ensure that people don't have an in-depth conversation about the issues. But, you know, that said, they weren't as egregiously bad as uh, you know Chuck Todd and the others were the last time we talked about a debate. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
nobody celebrated themselves mm-hmm. for asking silly questions or whatever. And I think they tried, uh, you know, we could talk about the amount of time distributed to various candidates and that type of thing, but on a, grading on a curve for debate moderation, I, I thought it was okay. Well, since you bring up that uh, point that it's not a very good uh, forum, what would be a better forum? The, uh, the uh, A similar forum but focused on uh, w- just one topic or one or two topics? Would that have made uh, a, a difference in any of these uh, debates, Richard? That would have been better. And I also like some of the uh, more... Uh, uh, profound ideas that have been suggested, like breaking up the candidates into groups of two and three and having them talk to each other and and ask each other, you know, Mm. uh, have uh, Bernie and and Amy Klobuchar or Biden and Mm -hmm. Warren, let them talk to each other, you know, see how they do in asking each other questions, answering each other questions, or give people chances you know, which you can't do with 12 candidates, but to give longer, uh, more more thoughtful answers. You know, this uh, they did better, no, no mm-hmm. question. CNN and New York Times did better, but, but the format is broken in my opinion. So aside from the questions about Bernie's health and, and perhaps Joe Biden's, which we, we will get into in a bit, uh, the thing that stood out to me were the attacks from uh, other candidates on Elizabeth Warren. And I don't know if we saw the same thing last month in Detroit, because I missed that debate, or if this is the first time uh, we saw it. But I want to get some thoughts on how she stood up to that fire. Here's just some of the incoming fire that Warren saw last night for the first time from fellow Democrats. I want to give a reality check here to Elizabeth, because no one on this stage wants to protect billionaires, not even the billionaire wants to protect billionaires. Uh, We just have different approaches. Senator Warren is is more focused on being punitive or, or pitting some part of the country against the other. Your signature, Senator, is to have a plan for everything except this. I appreciate Elizabeth's work, but again, Um, the difference between a plan and a pipe dream is something that you can actually get done. Now, uh, Jody, I realize questions about this stuff as opposed to policy is sort of uh, uh, cosmetic, uh, but I hate to say it, in this race, presuming Donald Trump is the candidate, which is not necessarily assured, by the way, uh, but the The ability to both take and return fire under pressure is going to be just one of the key issues, I think, both uh, in in Democratic voters' minds as they select a nominee and, I think, of course, in the general election itself, uh, certainly against Trump. Did we get any indication of how Warren would do on that score Tuesday night in Ohio, as you see it? I mean, I think we did. Um, one thing, I, I think Elizabeth Warren is extremely good at debating and also extremely good at turning an issue around and putting it back in its place. I think the one place where, and I've argued this elsewhere, that she's actually somewhat vulnerable, and not for the reasons that others might say, is on this Medicare question, because the reality is that she has an answer that, you know, as I've been saying on Twitter, if you're spending $35 on taxes and $35 on premiums and you're getting crappy care and then you spend $40 on taxes and $0 on premiums, your taxes went up, but your costs went down. And to make that much clearer and to, to use the word taxes without making it radioactive is, I think, something people need to start doing and I think she needs to start doing 
in order to diffuse that, this, you know, whole theme about she's mm-hmm. not being authentic and she's not answering the question. And I think she could have done better in that regard um, and, last night. And, of course, Jody, you complained that they let off once again with health care. And the first thing you brought up... <laughs> Is healthcare and uh, true. true. So, uh, so I guess it is an important issue, and I do want to get into specifics on that in a moment. But let me, as as long as we're talking about, you know, just how the candidates are are taking fire or not. You know, while I think in one sense it's important for whoever wins the nomination to sort of be hardened, as it were, and and sort of battle ready by the time he or she wins, which I think is is you know what is likely to happen if uh, Elizabeth Warren remains the front runner, she'll get a lot more fire about uh, you know throughout the process. But um, Cory Booker several times sort of chided his uh, fellow Democrats for at least some of the direct attacks or at least the tone of some of some of those attacks on Elizabeth Warren. You know, we've got one shot to make Donald Trump a one-term president. Mm-hmm. And how we talk about each other in this debate actually really matters. I, I've had the privilege of working with or being friends with everybody on this stage and tearing each other down because we have a different plan, to me, is unacceptable. I have seen this script before. It didn't work in 2016, and it will be disaster for us in 2020. Uh, Richard Eskow, is he is that's Cory Booker. Is he over worried about the attacks on Warren? I mean, she does need to be able to take it. Uh, or does he have a point that these direct attacks on her, as opposed to simply presenting a different plan, will result in campaign commercials that, you know, Republicans can use against the eventual nominee and divisiveness between Democratic voters themselves that uh, that Booker seems to be referring to? Well, first of all, if my uh, recollection is correct, he was actually defending Joe Biden. He, I think in the same speech, he said, because the question was about Hunter Biden, and he, I believe he was responding to the question about Hunter Biden. I could be wrong. Well, he did it several times. He, he came and, in several yeah. times and said, see, there you go with that tone again sort of thing, and tried to present a positive uh, message for everyone on the stage instead of uh, an attacking message. Yeah, I think, you know, I always, yes, I mean, I guess. I mean, I'm more concerned with... Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg's uh, disingenuous attacks on Warren, not for their tone. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I, I think tone policing is sometimes a way of trying to limit uh, the discourse a little bit. Uh, but what I uh, it was a disingenuousness that bothered me more than the tone. I mean, Elizabeth Warren said three or four times what her plan was, mm-hmm. and then Amy Klobuchar said, "A pipe dream is not a plan." And uh, well, she didn't offer a pipe dream. She offered a plan. But this is the kind of soundbite that Republicans can use. Or Pete Buttigieg, mm-hmm. with some of his attacks on her, the same thing. I, I think the uh, the notion is uh, that I wish Cory Booker had said was not let's all hands, hold hands and love one another. People are allowed to disagree within a party. But uh, more, uh, let's not uh, repeat uh, and and Klobuchar especially was defensive about this, but let's not repeat and reinforce Republican framing in order to score points. If we disagree, let's explain why we disagree. And I feel that was more corrosive, especially because mm-hmm. a lot of the Democratic base loves the idea that Warren and Sanders have, mm-hmm. many of the ideas. So if you're going to, you know, trash those ideas and do so in a way that's annoying, frankly,
differently, then you're going to, and you're, you win, or someone aligned with you wins, you're going to depress turnout in, in 2020. Yeah. So and well, I'm very concerned about that. And so about, that uh, Corey seemed preachy to me, but, you know, the, and, and a little, um, um, Pollyanna-ish, but but uh, but I know. But I think his point is a, fighting is clean. Yeah, is appropriate. You I, know, I, I think you sort of. It sounds like you actually sort of agree with his with his general point there. Never mind his Pollyanna-ishness, but um, I, I and to be frank, Jody, I still do not understand why Booker is not doing better. And you can tell me why he isn't. I hope. But here's because here's the thing. Uh, I kind of like him. Uh, sort of, you know, on a personal level. I think he's likable. I, I don't know him, but Americans, if you go back and you look at pretty much every election for decades, presidential elections at least, the voters tend to vote for the more likable of the two uh, nominees in the, 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 the two major parties, uh, for good or bad. Why isn't Cory Booker doing better? Well, I think the answer to that is the similar answer to why Amy Klobuchar and and perhaps also um, Kamala Harris are doing better as well. It's the lack of a cohesive vision. So you can say lots of things and make lots of you know proposals and interjections that interjections that are that are appealing to people, but. What's your raison d'etre for your campaign? Why are you running? What's your vision, your overarching vision, into which everything else fits? And I think that's why Warren has been rising steadily in the polls and why Bernie has been so popular consistently is because they do come with a vision. It's a, it's a cohesive, coherent vision that fits with the things they're saying. So making a proposal about gun violence or making a proposal about something else isn't just a standalone proposal, mm-hmm. but it's part of a broader vision, and people can see where you want to take the country. And I think people are really, you know, very hungry for that on a lot of levels, um, and therefore aren't as drawn to the candidates that don't have that vision mm. or aren't articulating it very well. So he's a nice guy. He's a likable enough fellow, but there's no particular reason for him to be in the race. He's not leading on any one particular issue or another. Is that sort of... Or, or an overarching vision in mm-hmm. which his issues fit. I mean, you know, it's funny that you say likable enough fellow because that was what Barack Obama said about Hillary Clinton, right? <laughs> you're oh, likable enough. And, <laughs> well, and, you know, Clinton, I think, partly failed in 2016. I mean, there's a lot of stuff there, right? But we're not going to go into all of that, but Partly, my critique of her during the time was that she had lots of proposals, but there didn't seem to be an overarching vision Mm. for her campaign. And I think that's something that draws people, you know, so you have this kind of, this kind of dichotomy right now between the people seeking safety Mm -hmm. in Joe Biden and the people seeking, you know, vision and change in Bernie or, or Elizabeth. And I think that goes back to your earlier question about things like Klobuchar, um, because really, you know, the the issues are really, there's really a fight within the Democratic Party between something called moderate, mm-hmm. and I'm not even sure what that means, mm-hmm. and everybody uses the term, but nobody defines it, and something called, you know, liberals or progressives, mm-hmm. which is more well-defined, but one gets to be made out as more dangerous than the other, and I think that part of that is Cory Booker's not clear where he is and what his vision is. 
That makes a lot of sense to me. I, I would actually define it, the, the, the struggle, the conflict, the tension within the Democratic Party as being go slow versus go big, uh, inspiring voters versus scaring voters. And that seems to be what the primary difference is, that the moderates seem to like the ideas, the so-called moderates seem to like these progressive ideas, but they think it's too scary and that that people will react badly against it and say, no, we can't stand this scary stuff. Well, So that's me- where it it draws between me that this I think the debate really showed that difference between the go big versus the go slow folks well some of the uh, some of the big scary stuff that you guys all seem to be referring to comes back to health care and maybe that's why it keeps leading these debates so I was going to hit a little bit later but let me do it uh, real quick now before we get to our first break here because, well, they, they led uh, Tuesday's debate with, uh, for a change this time anyway, with uh, the, the candidates' takes on impeachment of Donald Trump. Spoiler, I think they were pretty much all in favor of that. <laughs> uh, but it, it then moved quickly, uh, as all of these debates have, right to health care, presumably because it is the top issue among the electorate. And apparently the people on uh, our coverage today. So uh, because she's seen as the front runner, most of the heat there was on Elizabeth Warren, uh, who has joined Bernie Sanders in calling for a Medicare for all plan to replace private insurance. You have not specified how you're going to pay for the most expensive plan, Medicare for all. Will you raise taxes on the middle class for pay- to pay for it? Yes or no? So I have made clear what my principles are here, and that is costs will go up for the wealthy and for big corporations and for hardworking middle-class families, costs will go down. Senator Warren, to be clear, Senator Sanders acknowledges he's going to raise taxes on the middle class to pay for Medicare for all. You've endorsed his plan. Should you acknowledge it too? So let me be clear on this. Costs will go up for the wealthy, they will go up for big corporations, and for middle class families, they will go down. I will not sign a bill into law that does not lower costs for middle class families. So uh, she will not say that uh, her plan will raise taxes. I'll, I guess uh, let me ask Jody about this. That what's what's the real story here on on Warren's health care plan? Why does she have trouble saying whether it will raise taxes on the middle class or not? Because uh, it, it will. But she just doesn't want to have that in a soundbite to be used against her. I suppose that may be part of it. I, I do think, I mean, remember, it was Joe Biden in 2008 who said, paying your taxes is patriotic. And at that moment, I thought, thank God somebody's saying that, or 2007, whenever it was. Mm-hmm. But, you know, because that's true. And the word tax and taxes has become radioactive because the rate has made it radioactive. But the fact is, we need taxes to run this country. And we don't have enough taxes to run this country. Um, and the reality is that, this is why I was going back to earlier, is I do think a critique of Warren's debate performance yesterday was not to break down the fact that if your taxes go up by $5 but your costs go down by 40 mm-hmm. then you are actually coming out better. Mm-hmm. And the uh, maybe it is a soundbite issue. I think that's, that's possible. Oh, I definitely yeah, I think, think it's... Look, oh, I, sorry. Go ahead. I, I, I think, you know, having you know, worked with candidates on debate prep and and, and all of that. I I think that was, to me, it looked like a pretty straightforward case of debate prep gone wrong, of 
somebody saying to her she's really smart and she can think on her feet better than most of the people on that stage, I think somebody said to her, do not let them box you into <laughs> saying, I will raise taxes, because that will be the headline the next morning, mm -hmm. which, by the way, it would have been. So somebody said to her, look, you, you know, in terms of uh, kind of weighing and balancing, the headlines that say she didn't answer questions about Medicare for All would be better, because that, that's not really headline material, it'll be in the coverage, than a headline that says Warren says she'll raise your taxes. So they made that calculation. I happen to agree with Jody. I think it was the wrong calculation. Uh, but I think that a lot of people in the, I don't know who she's using for debate prep, but I think a lot of people in the Democratic uh, professional world, Democratic mm -hmm. Party professional world, have internalized that it's toxic to talk about raising taxes as opposed to you take a short-term hit in, the, in, in your coverage, mm -hmm. but you'll have a long-term benefit. If you say, yeah, I'm going to raise your taxes, I'm also going to save you much more than which, you'll pay in taxes. Which is essentially what Bernie, uh, which is what Bernie says. But for some reason, uh, she doesn't want to say it out loud. I suspect it's for the soundbite thing and leading the coverage. But uh, the other side of that is that the media are going to consistently keep pressing her on that in every debate, every yeah. appearance, uh, time <laughs> after time, no matter what, until well, she says it out loud. This is true. They are going to continue to do it because now it's become a thing. However, maybe she could fix that problem by calling premiums and deductibles and co-pays a tax and say, okay, then, sure, if you consider those things taxes, then your taxes are right. going to go down. Hmm. Yeah, that's, exactly. a, that's another important point. And there have been people who there are, there are people who have run the numbers on that and can tell you exactly how that works out. And the fact that if you include premiums and deductibles as taxes, if you count them on taxes, we're the most heavily taxed industrialized yeah. country in the world. What's the uh, real difference? Uh, maybe uh, well, either one of you here. Let's try Jody. Uh, the difference between uh, Medicare for All, which uh, Bernie and Warren are uh, are both supporting, and what Pete Buttigieg calls Medicare for all who want it. And that was a, a bit of a, a point of contention. Either one of you uh, want to get at that one? Well, Richard, do you want to take that first? Yeah, I mean, I, I, here's, the, here's the case that hasn't been made yet. First of all, uh, you can, everybody talks about uh, uh, kicking me off my employer coverage. You can kick me out of my coach seat anytime if you're giving me first class. Uh, uh, instead, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, this is nobody's talking mm -hmm. about the fact that the coverage under Medicare for all would be substantially better, and th that conversation has to be held. Um, secondly, nobody's talking. But about do, but do we know that, Richard? There's a lot of people who think yes, I have we great. Do know that. Well, they, we do know that. Well, we you know you know that. It's spelled yeah. out in the in, in the law the 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 elimination of copayments and deductibles mm -hmm. the the income based uh, taxation. But if I feel if I feel that I'm getting fantastic coverage right now, I feel good about my coverage. I feel good about my doctors. All of that. Uh, do I want you know through private insurance and whether I'm right or wrong, should I be forced to give up that excellent coverage as I see it for? Something else that I that I don't know that I don't know if if I want at all address that fear you mean that people might there, have yeah yeah there's a three part answer to that I mean and underlying all of it is 
we've all been demagogued into believing that. That's number one. Here's how. Uh, no, that's not number one, but it's important to understand. <laughs> so number one is it is very probable you will save money and have better coverage, and it is impossible that you will not be able to see the same doctors under Medicare for All. So that needs to be explained. There is no reason to fear it. There is every reason to welcome it. There is nothing to be afraid of. Part two that hasn't been explained is that if you allow, what's that expression politicians like to use, the camel's nose under the tent or whatever, of Mm -hmm. private health insurance. I worked in that industry. It is designed to be corrosive. It is designed to undermine the fiscal stability of a public insurance program, and it will do that. It's like rust. If you don't get it off your fender, you lose the whole car. uh, And that has to be explained. It has to be explained. That's the problem. Uh, That may be true, Richard, but uh, unless America understands that, and frankly, unless even the other Democratic candidates don't seem to understand that. uh, Let me hit this one more before we get to our break here. We're running long already, but I'll try to do this. Uh, One of the attackers of Warren and Sanders' plan, along with uh, Pete Buttigieg, was also uh, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar. She prefers a public insurance option that expands on the existing Affordable Care Act or or Obamacare. So she, like Joe Biden, uh, have attacked Warren and Sanders' plans as pipe dreams that are simply too expensive for the U.S. to possibly be able to afford for all citizens. The difference between a plan and a pipe dream is something that you can actually get done. And we can get this public option done and we can take on the pharmaceutical companies and bring down the prices. You know, I get a little here. bit tired, I must say, of people defending a system which is dysfunctional, which is cruel. The issue is whether the Democratic Party has the guts to stand up to the healthcare industry, which made $100 billion in profit, whether we have the guts to stand up to the corrupt, price-fixing pharmaceutical industry, which is charging us the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs. And if we don't have the guts to do that, if all we can do is take their money, we should be ashamed of ourselves. Well, don't give yourself another heart attack, please, uh, Senator Sanders. Uh, Jody, I, I think it's that sort of thing that Booker was worried about, these direct attacks like that, uh, you know, calling uh, these plans pipe dreams, that those are going to be used against her, against Warren or Bernie, if, if one of them is the eventual nominee, you know, coming from Amy Klobuchar. Couldn't, couldn't Klobuchar have made that same point, underscoring her plan rather than attacking Warren or Sanders directly? Sure, she could have. Um, I think there's there's a sort of double-edged sword here, right? One is these kinds of attacks and others and more harsh ones and more made-up ones Mm -hmm. are going to, you know, fake ones are going to come from the right in any case. So, Mm -hmm. you know, being kind of on the top of your game, anticipating what's going to happen and being able to get back at that is something that is going to have to happen. So there's, I think there's some utility to being pressured Mm -hmm. now. It's the winnowing process. On the other hand, you know, I sort of felt my own self like Amy Klobuchar came across as a peevish third breeder. I mean, <laughs> she doesn't present ideas. Her whole sort of campaign motto is as little as we can. <laughs> and um, I, you know, I feel like uh, the, that kind of thinking is that what I was trying to get at earlier is kind of the core of what we're arguing about the people who want to do as little as possible around the edges 
And one thing I think that Warren and others are going to have to come back to is, who are these people getting their money from? I really think the whole Twitter debate between Harris and Warren had to do with Harris getting money from tech companies Mm. that she won't be able to adequately, ostensibly anyway, adequately fight on addressing the more systemic issues around those companies. So picking out Donald Trump's account, while really valid and problematic, is not the sole problem there. It's a systemic problem. Um, And so similarly, I think with Amy Klobuchar, it's a systemic problem of thinking small. And um, I think the the challenge is going to be to redefine those critiques in such a way that you get ahead of them you reframe them and you and you de- and you neutralize them. That is uh, Jody Jacobson of Rewire.News, where uh, her uh, theme is Big Dreams Fight Hard. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and come back with both Jody and the Zero Hours, Richard Escow and Desi Doyen. Of course, I'm running late already, uh, so don't go away. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. <laughs> What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Now to the issue of candidates and their health. Senator Sanders, I want to start with you. I want to start. We're we're moving on, Senator. I'm I'm sorry. I'm feeling great, but I would like to respond to that. I want to. I want. (laughs) And uh, Senator Sanders is in favor of medical marijuana. I want to make sure that's clear as well. Thank you. Senator Sanders, this debate does mark your. This debate. All right. This debate. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. brother. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here in our special coverage of the 2020 Democratic debate number four out of Ohio on Tuesday night with our guests Jody Jacobson of Rewire.News and Richard Escow of The Zero Hour. Uh, Richard, your old boss, Bernie, uh, seemed to be in very good shape last night, even though he'd uh, suffered a heart attack, what, about two weeks ago? Despite his apparent good health, however, uh, last night, uh, this is a fair concern for the American people, is it not? A guy who is uh, pushing 80 and uh, has already had one heart attack in the middle of a campaign? Well, candidate health is always a concern, for sure. And I think there'll be a point in this campaign when it's appropriate for everybody to release their medical records for for whatever it's worth. I encouraged Bernie to say, and he did say in 2016, if you think I'm too old for the job, come out on the campaign trail and try to keep up with me for a day. Mm -hmm. And I did that because it's hard, because, you know, he was a long-distance runner. Mm -hmm. He's incredibly energetic. He he keeps uh, incredible hours. But that said, uh, you know, there are people, uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower had heart attacks in his 50s as president. That was a legitimate issue, too. So I'm not, I'm trying not to sweep it under the rug, but I'm also trying to avoid the ageism of saying it's just because of his age you Mm -hmm. should be concerned. We should be, we should know 
something about every candidate's health, I think, in this day and age, and then voters should be able to judge to what extent that weighs in their decision-making process. All, thre- all three of the uh, current frontrunners, uh, Warren, Sanders, and Biden, they're all in their 70s, so uh, following Sanders' heart attack, there was a focus on the age of those three candidates last night. Here was the uh, question to Vice President Joe Biden. Vice President Biden, if you're elected, you will turn 80 during your first term. Last month, former President Jimmy Carter said he could not have undertaken the duties of the presidency at 80 years old. Why are you so sure that you can? One of the reasons I am running is because of my age and my experience. With it comes wisdom. We need someone to take office this time around who on day one can stand on the world stage command the respect of world leaders from Putin to our allies and know exactly what has to be done to get this country back on track. I know what has to be done. I will not need any on-the-job training the day I take office. And I will release my medical records as I have 21 years of my tax records, which no one else on this stage has done. Now, uh, Bernie is actually older than Biden. That was Joe Biden there. But uh, to my mind and eyes, uh, Biden actually seems older than Bernie. And uh, it is not only an ageist concern, but as the AP fact checked uh, pointed out, uh, Jody, on Tuesday, Biden had said, I, I uh, quote, I would not have withdrawn the troops. This was concerning uh, Trump pulling troops out of uh, northern Syria and abandoning the Kurds, he says, I would not have uh, withdrawn the troops and I would have not withdrawn the additional 1,000 troops that are in Iraq, which are in retreat now, being fired on by Assad's people. Well, AP points out uh, the facts that the former vice president is wrong. There's no evidence that any of the approximately 1,000 American troops preparing to evacuate from Syria have been fired on by Syrian government forces led by uh, Bashar Assad. A small group, they say, of U.S. troops came under Turkish artillery fire near one of the towns last week without anyone being injured. But there is no indication that Syrian troops have shot at withdrawing Americans. And also, they note, Biden was addressing the situation in Syria, not Iraq. So... Jody, anyone can misspeak, obviously. And to be fair, uh, Biden has done that for much of his career, even when he was younger. But A, is that a line uh, is that line of questioning fair? And B, should we have concerns about the health of an 80 year old man as president during his first term in office? Frankly, whether it's Biden or uh, Sanders. So I don't and never have liked the focus on age per se as a factor. Mm-hmm. I think age is a factor in combination with other things. Obviously, as you get older and, you know, as you get older, Mm -hmm. um, you are more prone to having certain health problems and and those possibly manifest themselves. And in Biden's case, I think they are manifesting themselves in some sort of cognitive decline. I don't know what it is, um, but I do hear him frequently misspeaking, trying to find words, trying to say something that he says is actually wrong. And I, I think that's problematic. Um, I think it would be problematic in a 60-year-old and a 55-year-old, and, and, you know, and it's problematic for other reasons for the sociopath in the White House. But, but when we talk about age, oftentimes in these situations, it's a proxy for younger people are better. And 
that I don't buy because if you look at the field we have right now, um, I see two candidates who have really bold progressive visions and a tremendous amount of energy, and neither of them are the youngest of the pack. So I think that when we're looking at actual factual issues mm-hmm. around somebody's health, that's fair. Um, age alone, I don't think it's fair, and I think it's used, as it was used earlier in the campaign by Swalwell and other people to say, or, and it's used frequently by Buttigieg, we need a new generation. Well, mm-hmm. I don't like his idea of politics, no matter how old he is. Right. So um, I, I think that's a, you know, it gets to be, it's kind of like, quote, moderate or, quote, progressive or liberal. What are we talking about exactly? What, what are we trying to get at? What is the the issue we're trying to get at. Let's be really clear what we're trying to get at. Biden seems to have cognitive decline. That's a problem. Yeah. Definitely. I, I think we all sort of uh, agree with that. And it, and it's nothing against uh, uh, Biden, but, you know, when he's going to be 80 during his, well, <laughs> during his yeah, first well, term, it, but it's not the age. It's, it, I'm not concerned about, candidate. yeah, it's I'm not concerned about level, Sanders. Yeah. It's a two-level problem. The problem of whether he's experiencing cognitive decline and whether he gives the appearance of experiencing cognitive mm. decline, which would cause, could cause him to lose to Trump. And I think both are legitimate concerns. He, he, he needs to address his cognitive state of health, and voters need to assess whether the apparent uh, decline there is something that affects their belief in his electability. And it would be awesome if the corporate media also decides to ask Trump these same questions, since Trump yeah. is actually older than Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, but... And clearly has some cognitive decline, well, Trump does. I yeah. think we can all agree on that, too. Let, let, oh, me, yeah. let me hit one more uh, sub- substantive issue. If there was issue. ever any cognitive to decline from. <laughs> if there was... Uh, well, one more substantive issue here before we take our, uh, our final break here. Uh, CNN's Aaron Burnett challenged Warren's claim... That automation is not as much of a problem for job loss as bad trade deals are. And there's some debate about whether Warren is is correct about that or not. But she took the opportunity uh, to discuss uh, what she called accountable capitalism. Giant multinational corporations have no loyalty to America. They are loyal only to their own bottom line. I have a plan to fix that. And it's accountable capitalism. It says you want to have one of the giant corporations in America, then by golly, 40% of your board of directors should be elected by your employees. We also need to make it easier to join a union and give unions more power when they negotiate. We need to restructure strength in this economy, and that's where it starts. Uh, Richard Escow, can you unpack what she is talking about there? Accountable capitalism. She's been very careful to distinguish herself from Sanders as a, as a, as a capitalist versus Bernie, who's a proud democratic socialist. Is accountable capitalism actually a thing, Richard? It is a thing, and it's a very a very interesting idea. There are a lot of practical concerns about it. Would corporations move overseas and so on? But basically, she's building off a German model where workers are guaranteed seats on the board and a say in the direction of what happens to the corporation now. Uh, it remains to be seen whether this could work out in practical terms. But A, she's right, when she, in my, based on the data I've seen, it, 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 she is technically right that trade deals have cost much more jobs 
than automation has, at least today. You know, the future is unwritten. Uh, and B, I think her ideas about reforming capitalism, uh, while I might go further, are bold and they're mm-hmm. exciting. And I think they should, and I hope they will, change the political debate. Jody, before we go to a break, Jody Jacobson, uh, accountable capitalism is, you know, it, Richard mentioned it's, uh, you know, something like a German model. But no matter what it is, Donald Trump, the Republicans, no matter, even if it's Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar, they are going to attack whoever the Democratic nominee is as a socialist. So will calling it accountable capitalism make any difference? I mean, I, again, I think. When you're trying to change the frame of something, you have to be dogged about it, and you have to have people amplifying that. So I think that, yes, it can and does make sense to people that capitalism needs to be held more accountable. Also, AP, according to Dean Baker, was wrong. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. AP fact check. So, um, yeah, I can even send you guys that. But, um, but I, I just think that there is merit in talking about that, because if nothing else, um, and I believe in, you know, many of the policies that the Republicans would otherwise call quote-unquote socialist, um, you know, including, like, Social Security. Um, you know, basically, uh, it won't matter. What matters is the coherence and, and consistency with which the new frame is put out there and doggedly upheld. And what I worry about, and this goes back to another thing, is, you know, there's complaint about, like, um, calling Democrats part of the problem. That was something that uh, was charged at Elizabeth Warren yesterday, mm-hmm. that she calls other Democrats part of the problem, but other Democrats are part of the problem. <laughs> so, so there you go. Um, yeah. And and if there's anyone who's dogged out there on uh, any particular topic, it would be Elizabeth Warren. Uh, nobody's ever accused her of not being dogged. Uh, right. quick, quick break, and we'll come back with our closing few minutes, our special coverage on the broadcast of the fourth Democratic debate out of Ohio uh, with Rewire's Jody Jacobson and Zero Hour's Richard Escow and of course the delightful Desi Doyen and myself Brad Friedman right here on the broadcast Don't Touch That Dial Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate And thanks. What we have to do now is focus on Donald Trump. He doesn't want me to be the candidate. He's going after me because he knows if I get if I get the nomination, I will beat him like a drum. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com with our special debate coverage of the fourth Democratic 2020 debate out of Ohio last night uh, with my guests, Jody Jacobson and Richard Eskow. Uh, guys, last night marked the first appearance of the billionaire activist Tom Steyer on the uh, Democratic debate stage. Since, uh, you know, we've, we've yet to discuss him at all in such a context under... An abundance of fairness. This was his first debate. Let me uh, play a clip, and then I will get your thoughts on uh, on Tom Steyer entering the 
contest. Mr. Steyer, would you publicly reveal what the U.S. knows about Putin's corruption or work to freeze his bank accounts? Please respond. Absolutely. As far as I'm concerned, Mr. Trump's America First program, which involves having no plans, having no process, and having no partners, is proved to be a disaster in Syria. It's proved to be a disaster in terms of our response to Russia's attacking our democracy. Let's go to the most important international problem that we're facing, which no one has brought up, which is climate. We can't solve the climate crisis in the United States by ourselves. It's an international crisis. We have to work with our allies and our frenemies around the world. So if you look at what Mr. Trump is doing, of course, he's been bought by the oil and gas companies. But any problem that we're going to do, but specifically climate, we're going to have to lead the world morally. We're going to have to lead it technologically, financially, and commercially. This is the proof that this kind of America first, go it alone, trust nobody and be untrustworthy is the worst idea I've ever heard. And I would change it on day one in every single light. Okay, so that was Tom Steyer's first appearance, uh, maybe his last, I don't know, uh, before I attack him for spending $100 million on his own election instead of, for example, re-enfranchising a million or so Florida voters with that same $100 million. Desi Doyen, is there a good reason for him to be in the race? Jay Inslee is out. Uh, He had made climate crisis uh, his priority, um, and with the three-hour debate, there was not one question about climate. So are we glad to have Steyer there? I am glad that Steyer was in the race, to, I mean, in the debate to talk about climate change. Now, please get out and use that money to elect <laughs> candidates all over the country at the local, state, and national level who will fight for climate change and get out there, because I think he can do more good that way than on a debate stage, Jody, personally. Jody Jacobson, your take on Steyer's presence now. Same. Totally agree. It's time for him to go. <laughs> wow, he just got I mean, here. I, I think he should take his money and go invest it in a more efficacious manner <laughs> yeah. um, for exactly the purposes that were just stated. Richard, your take? He never should have been there. He, The story of how he got there has yet to be written, but it's fascinating. The, the, the bottom line is he bought his way onto that stage, and to me, his only use was a kind of living was as a kind of living animatronic exhibit that billionaires <laughs> can still pollute the, the political process. Now go. Well, uh, and I, I think someone might be coming to take you away based on that siren in the background for your comments, Richard. In the uh, just a few minutes, we have very few minutes we have left here. Um, you know, we're going to have more of these, and uh, in theory, they will get smaller, not larger, as this one did. But l- let's just go around the table here as far as uh, takeaways go. Uh, Desi Doyen, your take, your general take, uh, winner, loser, whoever you like, uh, from Tuesday's debate in Ohio. I think the uh, voters were the losers because I don't think we really got to the kind of substantive issues and discussions about the differences between the go big versus the go slow versions that we are being presented with. And the debate format does not help that. Richard, uh, they're all getting better, I I think, uh, whether you like them or not. I think they're all getting better. This process was meant to cull them, uh, you know, cull them down. But it, is it working? <laughs> Well, you know, there's been some culling going on. I think the big winners were uh, Bernie for looking and sounding healthy and being sharp, Warren for taking the heat and and coming out uh, more than standing. 
Uh, I think the losers were the centrists, but that may not be an objective uh, uh, view on my part. Uh, I think they're slowly getting better, but believe me, they'll get a lot better when we have three candidates on that stage instead of eight, nine, ten, or twelve. Jody Jacobson, your final thoughts on whatever you like: winners, losers, uh, anything you missed? Yeah, I co-sign both of the prior comments, and also just um, to reiterate that I I think. You know, we just have too many people on the stage at this point. Um, and I think that, you know, there are some sort of almost clowny people there. And it, it, we need to get beyond this because we need to have some serious mm-hmm. conversations and debates. And we also need to put pressure on the moderators to do better because, come on. The, uh, yeah. how, how, how do we call those people? We just uh, well, DNC needs to raise the uh, the requirements to get into these things. I, I I mean I think that the next set of debates is going to result in having fewer people on stage. I do think that there were a little bit too loose requirements that the DNC had mm-hmm. for the sort of second third of this process because I'm not sure they totally anticipated, or if they did, they didn't put enough heed to. The fact that people like Marion Williamson could turn on her, you know, social media account and get a number of, of donors or people like Tom Steyer could buy their way in or whatever. Um, I there, think you need to account for that. There's always a shot at Marion Williamson at the end of these <laughs> uh, debate shows. That I've was, never been here before. I'm sorry. That's quite all right. Rewire.news is Jody Jacobson. You can find her, of course, at Rewire.news or on the Twitters where I follow her, J.L. Jacobson. And, of course, you can and should follow Richard R.J. Escow at, uh, on the Twitters as well, at R.J. Escow, conveniently enough. And check out his show, The Zero Hour, at thisiszerohour.com. Thanks, guys. Greatly appreciate both of you uh, joining us today. And uh, don't be disappointed if we call and bother you again in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we got to get out. Thus wraps up another special edition of the broadcast. Only a year more to go. Oh, my God. Thank <laughs> you to our producer, Desi Doyen, and, of course, to both of my guests today, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. It is free to you, thanks to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate and support the work that we try to do on the broadcast every day. Bradblog dot com slash donate drop me email if you like i am bradcast at bradblog.com on the facebook's and the twitters i am simply the brad blog see you there until we see you tomorrow i'm brad friedman good luck world (laughs) 